The defense sector is not moving as quickly as the Pentagon wants it to as the U.S. continues supplying materials for the wars in Ukraine and Israel. Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. Defense News Pentagon reporter Noah Robertson joins us to share more on if industry can transform again to meet the Pentagon's demands. What does it all mean for defense and security? You'll find out. I'm your host, Jonathan Lerfeld. Today is Monday, February 26, 2024. Noah, thank you for joining us. Good to be here. So with the ongoing wars in Ukraine and Israel, the Pentagon wants the defense sector to move quickly to supply materials to allies and partners, right? How is it dealing with an industry that is struggling to meet those needs? I think the first thing that they would say that they're doing is strategizing. Earlier this year, they released the Pentagon's first ever defense industrial strategy, which is aimed at four different sectors of the national defense industrial base. Um, Those have everything to do from resilient supply chains to making sure that they have an adequate workforce. And within those, they have about 24 different sub-recommendations for how the Pentagon wants to tailor its defense industry, not just for the next 30 years, uh, but also in the proximate term, the next three to five years. The intent is to then use that as a document to coordinate the entire Pentagon's work, not just in OSD, but also across the services to make sure it's making the best use out of its defense industry in a strategic way. So how is it dealing with those challenges to meet one of its larger priorities, which is countering China? What are experts saying about how industry is holistically transitioning post 9-11, where there wasn't ever really a question about an ability to generate enough material capability, to now one that's focused on competition with an economic peer like China. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good point because the document lists China as the national defense strategy does as the pacing challenge, uh, meaning that the China is setting a pace that the U.S. needs to be able to meet and that involves a certain amount of supply as well. The U.S. does not have the same manufacturing capacity as China anymore. Uh, is well surpassed at this point, and it describes in the document about how China has surpassed in many sectors uh, the manufacturing capability of not just the U.S., but its own allies as well. The question then becomes, how does the U.S. best take advantage of its own advantages in a potential conflict or competition with the People's Republic of China. They have different answers for this within the building, the first of which is that the U.S. still makes the best weapons in the world, uh, the highest quality. People all around the world want to buy those. And for that reason, the U.S. can double down on its advantages in quality over quantity. But quality will only get you so far in a conflict against the world's leading manufacturing power. So they've made targeted investments, the DOD has, in different sectors of the supply chain, critical uh, supply choke points, things like solid rocket motors, which are receiving funding through the Defense Production Act and other levers there. They're doing their best to navigate these bottlenecks in a way that uh, will prevent future bottlenecks from arising in the future where they to ramp production of critical munitions going forward. Walk me and listeners through this idea of industrial base 101. How has the Pentagon's relationship with the defense industry changed over time? The first thing that you need to know about the Pentagon's relationship to its defense industry is that the Pentagon's orders dictate 
what industry will supply, and then over time, what industry will be able to supply. The Pentagon is essentially the defense industry's only customer, accepting foreign military sales and direct commercial sales to U.S. partners. For that reason, when the Pentagon changes what it is ordering in a consistent fashion, the defense industry will then accustom itself to the shape of that. This happened most pronouncedly in the 1990s following the end of the Cold War. There was less of a need to spend money on defense because the USSR had collapsed, and for that reason, the Pentagon was spending much less money, not just overall, but specifically on its procurement budgets, i.e. the kit that it buys. This led the defense industry to have a difficult option. They could try to um, maintain their current capacity, but had no guarantee that they would have the orders to be able to sustain that, or they would consolidate or merge together in order to survive. There was a famous dinner in 1993 in which the Secretary of Defense invited about two dozen leaders from the defense industry. This came to be known as the Last Supper, in which the Secretary of Defense looked at them and suggested that the best thing that they could do is consolidate, otherwise they would not be able to sustain the current level of defense suppliers that had been the norm before. And in the 1990s, consolidation became the norm. There went from 51 prime or large contractors to five at the end of that period, which capped out around 1998. With that has come a different sort of defense industry that the Pentagon can now rely on as it tries to adjust back to pure competition with a competitor like China, which has a much larger manufacturing industry, of course, than we do. The Pentagon is now trying to expand orders, but doing so with five prime contractors rather than 51, meaning that there are much less capacity lying around because each company has tailored its orders to be as efficient as possible, losing as little money and excess capacity is a way for them to meet their margins as best as possible and respond to their own economic incentives. But it also then means that it's much harder to ramp the kind of production that the Pentagon now wants to do to respond to its pacing challenge. So now, what other details can you share about the Pentagon's newest industrial-based strategy? I think one of the things that is most being looked at in reference to the strategy, particularly by folks in industry, is what implementation will look like. The Pentagon releases an annual industrial capabilities report. They have released a lot of literature on this topic in the last several years, starting with the Trump administration, in which they released the largest top-down study of the industrial base by the Pentagon since the Eisenhower administration. That has really been the kickstart for a lot of work similar in the years since looking at the industrial base and how to retool it for great power competition. But the successes of those reports have been limited. They've helped raise the awareness of different stakeholders in Congress and around the interagency and the government about the industrial base and its frailties, but it's not been enough to actually go and implement many of the recommendations that have been consistent to this point. Things like expanding the workforce, expanding the manufacturing sector, and then also making sure that supply chains are as resilient as possible. So for that reason, the Pentagon has pledged to release an implementation plan for this new strategy. There will be a non-classified version, which will release and is essentially a summary of a forthcoming classified version of the implementation plan, which will not itself become public. They've said that will come out, the non-class version, in February. It's not necessarily clear whether that will actually be the case. The classified version is supposed to come out in March, but again, it's the Pentagon. Timelines can be flexible. As we you know, mentioned previously, we've now hit the anniversary of the Russian invasion, 
in Ukraine, now entering the third year of this war. What updates can you provide folks on the state of the conflict and also U.S. financial support for Ukraine? How how does industry tie into that as well? It has been a tough week and tough new year for the Ukrainians. Most recently, they were forced out of the city of Avdivka, which had been under siege in the east for months from the Russians, which is part of a counteroffensive that they launched against Ukraine's own counteroffensive, which sputtered in large part last year, failing to realize even its most minimal gains. For that reason, the Ukrainians have been on the back foot. One of the large reasons that they lost Avdivka was because of a huge fires disadvantage that they are now facing, where they are firing only about two to 3,000 shells um, per month, whereas the Russians can fire far above that, something like um, 10,000. This really relates to a core difference between Russia and Ukraine and its Western backers since the start of the war. Everyone in this group has been ramping up their own defense industries. Russia has been able to do that very effectively, given the kind of latent manufacturing capacity that they had lying around and the ability to just surge spending into their defense industry, because this is a war that uh, Vladimir Putin might rightly consider existential for his own tenure. Therefore, they've increased the spending in vast amounts. That being said, the issue right now with Ukraine is not that the weapons aren't there to be sent by its Western backers. It's that they aren't being sent. Europeans have done as much as they can in order to make up the um, supply of weapons that has not been forthcoming since the U.S. ran out of funding to do so in early this year. But they can only do so much given how much larger America's defense industry is and how America to this point has been the main supplier of security aid to Ukraine. So the supplemental bill to provide something like $100 billion in aid to Taiwan, Ukraine, and to Israel and Gaza has been held up in Congress. It recently passed in a slimmer $95 billion version in the Senate on a bipartisan fashion, but that bill has been declared dead on arrival by Speaker of the House Mike Johnson in the House. There are bipartisan negotiations going on to see if they can move that forward, but such negotiations have been going on for more than three months. It's difficult to see a path forward and for that reason to see how Ukraine will be able to not cede further territory to the Russians. Given everything that's happening with Ukraine and Israel and given U.S. competition with China, do you think or do experts, have they been telling you that industry is prepared for future crises? I think the honest answer is that people are not sure. The question of whether the U.S. will be prepared for future crises in large part depends on what those crises are. And as we saw on October 7th of last year, the crises can be different than what people are expecting. With all the focus on Russia, Ukraine, and then also on China and Taiwan, Israel and Gaza have ended up in a large and pronounced war, which has been sapping U.S. attention and stockpiles as well. The question going forward is whether the U.S. can prepare its defense industry for the needs of the future, but the needs of the future have different answers to them. There are those on the innovation side who are from non-traditional companies who think the Pentagon needs to remake what it buys and invest more in high-tech AI and drone capabilities to be able to decentralize its force structure. There are also those who think the U.S. needs to build up its traditional manufacturing sector again to be able to go and outcompete with a peer competitor in a way more similar to what it did in World War II, in which most of the government contracting was done in a fashion that was owned 
owned by the government rather than private industry, which only changed in the 1950s. The question of that is in large part a referendum on what the Pentagon wants to double down on, whether it wants to focus on these new innovative capabilities, or whether it wants to focus on the kind of traditional manufacturing systems that have so far defined American warfare. The question of whether it can transition from one to the other, or whether it can even build back that uh, capacity that it had before is, I think, still an open one and uh, will depend in large part on the success of the administration to tailor investments into um, different sectors. That's it for us this morning. To get more of the top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at Defense underscore News and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted by me, Jonathan Lairfeld, and produced by Zamone Z. Perez. If you liked our conversation with Noah, be sure to check out his work at DefenseNews.com. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Gruse. Have a great day.